I was hurting at this point. I, in fact, I was up at the counter, kind of leaning on it, like I couldn't stand up straight anymore. Mm. And Natalia yelled, if you guys ever need a friend, this is the friend that you want because Natalia yells, could somebody get us a wheelchair? <laughs> Hi everyone, starting out today with a quick story and this one comes to us from our friends at Sunny Skies. This is entitled, A Letter to the Angel Who Saved My Life. In 2016, I tried to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. People were photographing me in their sick, morbid, selfish curiosity as I was preparing to jump, tears filling my eyes, and it was awful. When they started to take pictures of me, I knew in that moment that nobody gave a blank. No one. But there was one heaven-sent angel, if you will, who approached me. I was shocked. He seemed so strangely meant to be there. Didn't seem like someone who would casually be strolling along the miles of bridge. I don't know if this makes sense or what, but he seemed like a, a, a shaman or an oracle or something. He was dark-skinned and had long black hair and gold teeth. He came up to me and said, you really seem like you need a hug. What do you need to talk about? I'm here. Just get off the ledge and talk to me. Please don't do this. I tried for months after to find this person, but I don't even know how to. But whoever you are and whatever you are, you saved my life and I love you. I never forgot you and your kindness and humanity will never be forgotten. I try to pay it forward to others, thanks to you. You never know what people are going through. You never know if they're a second away from ending it all. Be kind and love. It will make a world's difference. Hi, everyone. I'm Chriselle Fulmer. And I'm Natalia Bonner. Welcome to the Unalike podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We've got lots of fun things to talk about today. We're going to talk with Natalia about... The one thing that happens every time you plan for a trip, we're going to be talking about some good news that I recently had as I had to prepare announcements for a family get-together and a history of passing out. <laughs> Who is it? What happens and why? Plus, she put her husband through dental school at the age of 40 while raising seven kids. We're going to hear from Suzanne Espinoza. She's today's Unalike guest. Wow, that story was awesome and a good reminder for all of us. I definitely think it's easy from time to time to maybe judge someone when we really shouldn't. Mm -hmm. You never, ever know like what people are really dealing with. A lot of us bury things deep down and just remember that. Be that shaman or whoever he was that day and yeah, be the good. Yeah, You may just save somebody's life. I love that. So I learned recently that your husband is one of your lifesavers. He is. When I found this out, I couldn't stop. I don't know if I was laughing or if I was just in disbelief, but he does something for you. I know that as a busy working mom, any little thing that our husbands do to help us out is greatly appreciated. However, when I learned this, I was floored. So I, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I've spent many years, I spent about 10 years on the road traveling and teaching how to machine quilt. So during that time, 
when I was traveling like that, I had to travel with quilts, lots and lots and lots of quilts. And they're big, they take up a lot of space, and being able to maximize your weight and your space when you're traveling and teaching isn't the easiest thing. Sure. So Those my husband can be heavy. Yeah, they can be really heavy. So he actually worked in, he managed a few clothing stores while we were first married and throughout that time. So he's really good at folding and things like that. So when I started traveling, out. <laughs> Brad does all of the laundry. He does. I'm not allowed. <laughs> Not allowed. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that in a second. But when I started traveling a lot, he realized how difficult it was for me to fit all of my quilts into these bags. And a lot of times he would travel with me and it just worked out. You know, I would be talking to people at shows or different things like that. And it was helpful that he would fold everything. And it just became a thing. So in the last 10 years, I have not packed a single bag for myself because he just does it. And when I say he does it, it's really amazing. And he always get, you know, I rarely forget anything because he's really good at remembering. <laughs> However, on a recent vacation to Hawaii, he packed <laughs> everything, including my swimming suit. So don't give your husband that much control. <laughs> but it is a really amazing thing that he does <laughs> for me. And wow. I do definitely appreciate it. But when it comes to the laundry, I might get in trouble for even ever admitting this. But when we were first dating, I he owned his own home. And so I would go there and help him out with the household chores and different things like that. And I hated laundry. And I would intentionally start laundry and put all the colors in there. Because <laughs> I knew he was good at it. And he would get so mad at me that finally I got banned from laundry before we ever got married. Oh and I gosh. never had to do... I've never done laundry since we've been married. We could write a book about her and we could call it The Woman Who Was Banned From Doing Laundry. It's okay. I'm not complaining. <laughs> so I a, a little... Uh, tidbit about me. Um, in my first marriage, I was married to a man who loves to shop and very into fashion. Mm -hmm. When we first got married, the first thing he did was go through my closet and told me everything I had to get rid of be because it didn't meet current fashion standards. Um, it, I, I'm very much a jeans and t-shirt girl. That may surprise some people, but I, I could be all about my jeans and t-shirt on a day in, day out basis. Uh, yeah, he was like, you need this, you need this. He would spend hours <laughs> browsing the internet and studying outfits and then figuring out how to take this expensive outfit that maybe a celebrity is wearing and how to put the whole thing together from Ross or Target or whatever your favorite store is. But I didn't realize it until I was no longer married to him. He did most of my shopping. I would say 90%. And you talk about how divorce is, nobody wins in divorce. And especially mm -hmm. if kids are involved, it, it nobody wins. But I will say if there's one thing I lost, I lost my personal shopper. <laughs> okay, so I am so fascinated to know. And I would love to hear everybody's response. So leave comments. You know, send us messages, tag us on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, and let us know. Are you like this? Is there, am I the only one out there that's banned from laundry? <laughs> Is Chrishell the only one out there that can't dress herself? <laughs> 
let us know. <laughs> you all should be proud that I got ready today and put this necklace on for you. <laughs> Baby steps. <laughs> all right. So, Natalia, I hear that you know what a fluffle is. I do. I've never heard of the word. It's a group of bunnies. And I only know this because where <laughs> I live, we have bunnies. Lots and lots of wild okay. bunnies. So, a group of bunnies is called a fluffle. I just thought it was kind of cute. <laughs> Do you have a fluffle living at your house? We don't have a fluffle in our house right now. We have had some tragedies with bunnies in our swimming pool. So <laughs> that's all we'll say about that. Maybe you need a duffel for your fluffle. Something. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I have some good news. All right. So what's the good news? I recently hosted a family event. One of my daughters was baptized. And so for her baptism, we wanted to put together some family invitations and invite the immediate family members. Well, the idea of putting these invitations together, the design mm -hmm. the aspect, layout. was very overwhelming to me. Not because I don't know how I actually am good at putting pictures in and, and creating a layout. But I think just with being busy, it felt overwhelming. It was one more thing for me to do at the time. And so I went to a few of my favorite design sites. And, and again, I, this is something I could even do from scratch. But hey, why do it from scratch when you can hop into a, a site that has templates for you and you just plug stuff in. So totally. I went to a couple different sites. And, you know, a baptism is something that is a specific event. So you mm -hmm. are really going for a specific look and feel. Uh -huh. And I did not like any of the baptism invitations out there. Just not my style. So I left one site, went to the next one, did not like anything that I was coming across. And then I had the thought to go to a third site. It's one I've used before. Mm -hmm. And when I logged in, there was a draft announcement that I created four years ago when my oh. older daughter was baptized. It was completely done, had all of the information in there, the name, the date, the time, um, all of her little pictures laid out. And I don't know why I didn't use it, except it has a lot of greens and blues in it. And I think maybe at the time I wanted to do pink and do something more mm -hmm. feminine. Mm -hmm. So I, that's the only thing that I can think that I went away from it. Well, daughter number two who has a very different personality the I I anyway opened it up there it was and it was just like this whoa, moment and I really feel like it was a god thing and I, I should probably explain that term but basically I felt like that was a little bit of divine intervention on that day with um god helping me out and putting that literally right in front of my face already designed. Literally all I had to do was swap out the pictures and change the names. That's awesome. Don't you love it when those little things happen? That And when you can actually realize that it was a good thing, it can totally change your outlook on maybe even your whole day or yeah, it's yeah. kind of cool to find just the little, the little things that make you happy. So speaking of your daughters, I totally think we have to do a <laughs> say what, so what. Okay. Because there's a moment with your daughters that you and I experienced that not very many people in this life maybe get to experience. <laughs> so several years ago when you were pregnant with your first child, I'm going to tell this as my point of view. We'll hear your point of view maybe afterwards. Okay. So I had a nine-month-old daughter and I was a stay-at-home mom and you were pregnant mm -hmm. and 
overdue. Mm-hmm. And you decided that you needed to maybe not have this baby ever. I'm thinking you were just going to keep her in there. So a week past your due date, we went out to lunch with my daughter and my baby. And we're sitting there at lunch <laughs> at this crepe place. And you're like, oh, they're, they're kind of hurting. My stomach's tight. And I'm saying to you, I've had a baby. I think these are contractions. I These seem like kind of what happens when I had a baby. But I was induced with my first child. So I didn't know what it was like to actually go into labor. So this kept happening and I was at that point decided we needed to go back to your house. So we went back there and you would lay on the floor and I would time you. And at this point, (laughs) these contractions are like 10 minutes apart, but getting closer. And I don't know what to do. And I have a baby. And for some reason on this particular day, I had driven my husband's truck to your house. We talked which about was last a big, week about driving husband's trucks. Yes. This was a big lifted truck. And I'm not a good, remember, I don't drive. So I'm not a good <laughs> driver. <laughs> so we're at your house and they're getting closer. And I'm like, we need to go to the hospital. It's time to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. At this point, they're about three to four minutes apart. So I talk you into letting me drive your SUV at least because I felt more comfortable driving that in a city than my truck. So we get in the car and I have no idea where we're going. And you're not in any... She doesn't drive in the city. I don't drive. And you are not in any position to tell me. And this is before we had like maps on our phones and things like that. Oh, yeah. So I'm driving. I have my baby in the newborn's car seat in the back seat. (laughs) And you're in the passenger seat trying to scream at me between <laughs> contractions to tell me where to Hold turn. Hold on. Did you say the back seat? My child's in the back seat. You're in the passenger, passenger seat. I'm driving and you're screaming at me between contractions of where to turn, how to get to the hospital. Yeah. So we arrive at the hospital and I am like in sheer, this is the movies. Like we're running in here and you're screaming and all of this. So we walk in, walk right up to the labor and delivery counter and they're like, No, we don't think, like, they were very calm, like, telling you, you probably weren't really in labor because you're acting normal, and I'm back there having a heart attack that you're in labor and all of this, and so they kind of check you, and as soon as they check you, they got you in a room and checked you, they're like, you're in labor, and at that point, it was like emergency epidural, emergency all this, and I will never forget standing there in the room holding my newborn in one arm (laughs) while trying to hold on to you. And you're squeezing me to death. I thought I was going to die as you got the epidural. (laughs) And it worked. You had a baby. Everything worked out (laughs) fine. But it was like the movies to me. The absolute rush, the terror, the as fast as it went. I didn't know where we're going. You didn't have a spouse there. Like, it was a movie moment for me. It was definitely one of the most traumatic days of my life. (laughs) She just told that to me the other day that... That the birth of my firstborn was the most traumatic day of her life. And I was like, oh, that makes it sound like it was a really bad day. But she was kind of my guardian angel. I had, uh, so to give a little bit more context, I had gone over and um, I had told my work that I would work up until my due date. And when nothing happened on the due date, I kept going into work. So on the on this morning, I had gone to a doctor appointment and she said, we're going to give you two more days. Mind you, I'm already a full week over. She says, we're going to give you two more days and then we're going to have to induce. I did hit a brief moment where I was like, you know, 
I think we're good. I'm sleeping pretty good through the night. The house is staying clean. Maybe I like this baby where it is after all. So I, I wasn't in a rush. But anyway, I left the appointment. I went to my office. My coworkers see me come in. I have to tell you, I had to climb five stairs to get into the building. I, through that pregnancy, first of all, I embraced eating for two. I gained a full 50 pounds. I ate full-size pizzas at lunch every day in the lunchroom. And many of those coworkers, Becky Oakstetter still tells me <laughs> that she cannot believe I would eat an entire pizza every day for lunch. So I, anyway, it, stairs got hard for my knees. I, I honestly believed I would never again be able to climb stairs. They were that bad. So I climbed five stairs on this last day and got to the top and stood there holding the railing and kind of panting and trying to catch my breath. And I thought, I'm not feeling really good. I think I'll go in and tell them I can only work half a day full on believing I'm coming back to work tomorrow. So that just kind of became the mindset like, nah, she's never coming. So I go in, I sit down at my desk, coworkers all stop by, say hi, ask me how we're doing. Still no baby. And Sat there for a minute and thought, I don't feel good. Um, completely in denial that I'm having a baby. Just thinking, I don't feel good. Finally get up the courage to go down the hall to my boss and say, I think I might only work half a day. And she got after me, said, you are having a baby. You need to go home. And so I basically got kicked out of the office. And as I drove home, I thought, what am I going to do? So I called Natalia and asked her if she'd go to lunch with me. She came right up, being a stay-at-home mom. She had some time. Uh, she tells her side of the story pretty well. I thought that, well, you grabbed a yellow notebook and began to write down every time I was having contractions. I don't believe they were 10 minutes. I think they were down to five Maybe. and four and three and two. And you were logging every one. I was still in denial. I fully believed they were going to slow down and go away. And I uh, remember that you called your mom and said, I'm with Chriselle. She thinks that she can stay here. And she said, put me on the foot, put her on the phone. And she yelled, Chriselle, you're having a baby. Go. So now I'm getting yelled from her as well. And. So I had not ever packed a bag. I remember crawling around the bedroom floor trying to put stuff in a bag and you kind of just staring at me with big eyes. And my husband was working in a hospital, a different hospital. I think you're the one that called him and he also was in denial. Do you remember? He also said, well, is it real? Like yeah. she really, like, <laughs> she has an epidural. She's really coming. And he was like going to finish his shift. Mm -hmm. Like, well, maybe I'll just come over when I get off work. Yeah. And I don't remember, I can't remember if he ended up leaving early. I don't remember what his hours were, but so Natalia was there with me. The funny thing I remember is we did get to the hospital we go in. Do you remember there was another couple trying to check in mm -hmm. and she was 37 weeks mm -hmm. and she's standing at the counter giving her story. And I was hurting at this point. I, in fact, I was up at the counter kind of leaning on it like I couldn't stand up straight anymore. Mm -hmm. And Natalia yelled, if you guys ever need a friend, this is the friend that you want because Natalia yells, could somebody get us a wheelchair? <laughs> 
Time now to introduce today's unalike hero. Suzanne Espinoza was close to 40 years old when her husband decided that he wanted to go back to school to complete a dental degree. They had seven children and they decided to uproot their family and move across the country to start this new chapter in their life. We had the opportunity to catch up with her and find out what she's been up to. Here's a look at that conversation. Hi everyone, we're here with Suzanne Espinoza, current president of the Alliance of the American Dental Association. She has six children and is a full-time wife to Dr. Ernesto Espinoza, who is a dentist practicing in the great state of Wisconsin. Suzanne, welcome. Thank you, thanks for having me. You're welcome, well, yeah, absolutely. So Suzanne and I have known each other for a few years. Uh, I think one of the things that inspires me about you is that you were well into your 30s when your husband decided I think I'm going to go back to school. You already had five kids. You were pregnant with a sixth, and it meant that you were going to be moving your whole family and heading across the country. So take us back to those days, um, maybe before, before this all started, before you got to where you are today, and, and talk a little bit about what was going on and, and what led to that decision to apply for dental school. So... Um... My husband immigrated to the United States when he was 19, and he worked in um, production, he worked in manufacturing, and he hadn't graduated from high school in Mexico. He didn't have that opportunity. Uh, he and his older brother dropped out of high school to work full-time to provide for their family. And so he's always been a really hard worker. He started working when he was five years old. Um, just to make sure that there was food on their table. So really hardworking guy. He had the opportunity to immigrate when he was 19. He was the only member of his family who came and worked really hard. And after a few years, his boss recognized his potential and made him a partner. And then they purchased another, uh, another production plant and he was the head of that. And he had gotten to the point when we were dating when he thought that he had kind of reached the pinnacle of success in the United States, right? He was the part owner of a company and he had somebody counsel him to go to school. And he was in his uh, late twenties at the time and he and I were dating and he came out to visit me at college and thought it was a really cool experience and just had received this counsel to go to school. And so he, he sold his portion of the company and moved and started going to college when he was almost 30 years old. And since he hadn't graduated from high school, they made him take like all of those remedial classes in college. So he didn't start at a college level, even though he was really smart and all of those things, they just didn't even know where to place him. So for almost two years, he took, you know, those concurrent enrollment classes where high school students can take those. Those were the classes they made him take. <laughs> and so he was, I was, I was graduating from college when he was starting, like really taking his real college courses. And so he started off in mechanical engineering because he had worked with machinery. He'd worked in production. He knew that he had a gift and a talent for the way that things work and, and working with machinery. And so he thought, well, mechanical engineering's a, a great fit for me. And he was almost done with his mechanical engineering degree. And he had this Russian professor, a physics professor, who came to him one day and he said, Ernesto, you know, be good engineer. You're too much people person. And so he was talking to him about how he was too social and too much of a people person to be a good engineer because engineers are stuck in cubicles looking over plants and all of these things. And so um, he said, you need to be doctor. You be good doctor. 
And so he was thinking about it and he's like, oh, well, that, that's kind of an interesting thing. You know, he's in his thirties already and, um, and was almost at the end of this, you know, what he thought was going to be the pinnacle of his, his success being an engineer. And so then he, um, he thought about that for a little bit. And during that time, when he was 30 years old, when he was going to college, he went to the dentist for the very first time. And he'd never been to the dentist in his life because in Mexico, that's kind of what people with money do. Or if you, you know, you're going to die because you're in so much pain, that's when you go to the dentist. There's no like preventative uh, dentistry or medicine, at least back then there wasn't. And so he went to the dentist for the first time and it was actually a life-changing experience. It sounds really corny, but it was. And so as he was kind of rolling this around in his mind, that medicine sounded like a, an option that would be a good fit for him. And, and he knew at that point that he was good enough in the sciences and everything um, that, that he would be able to do it. He thought dentistry, dentistry would be a good fit for me. And so he kept rolling that around in his head. And he was really afraid to tell me because I was done with college, we had decided not to put off having our family. And so we had already started having children. And I had kind of like, you know, you know, before Christmas, you have like your little, your little chains where you're like your paper chain, where you're like pulling off the little links and you're yeah. counting down. Like I, he knew that I was already in that phase of like, okay, we're almost there. Like I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and I know I can do this. And so he came home one day and he was like, I think I need to go to dental school. And I lost my mind. I was like, no. And I, I looked into it with him and tried to figure out like what it would, what it would mean. And I was like, you'll be 40 when you graduate. And at that time, 40 seemed so old to me. And I called my sister and I cried to her and I was like, he's going to be 40. And she was like, 40 is not dead. And it's better to be 40 and happily unemployed than 40 and an unemployed engineer who, you know, it's not that engineering's there's anything bad with it, but she said they lay off engineers by the thousands at these companies and they send them places where they don't necessarily want to live and you don't really have any control. And she was like, Dennis can go anywhere. And so I kind of thought about that and thought about the fact that 40 was kind of a stupid thing for me to be upset about. And so anyway, I got on board with it and I said, okay, that's fine. I will fully support you. I've always supported you. Well, we found out that switching his major to a pre-dental pre-med, um, major, all of the sciences that he had taken were physical sciences and he needed all the biological and chemical sciences. And so we basically had to start over again. So by the time he graduated from, with his bachelor's degree, he almost had like a double degree. Sure. Um, and he, so we prayed really hard and we were trying to figure out where he should go to dental school. And um, we were worried that maybe he wouldn't get in and, and all of these things, you know, these, these different dynamics that were playing into it. And we continued to having our family and we owned a business that he would work really hard during the summer to pay for school. And so there were all of these things happening and we were trying to figure out where to go to dental school. And he ended up with three options and we had prayed really hard to be able to stay. We had moved to Utah for our undergrad. So both of us did our undergrad in Utah even though I'm from California and he, that's where we met and, and lived when we first dated. And so we wanted to stay in Utah because we had a house, we owned a business. We thought that that would be a great place to stay. And they had a brand new dental school there. Mm -hmm. We also thought California would be a good fit because that's where I was from and it was close to Disneyland. So, you know, during those miserable dental school years, I would be able to have an annual pass to Disneyland and take <laughs> my kids there, you know, when, when it got really tough and I was by myself. And so those were kind of the two things that we really, the two places we really wanted to go. He ended up getting into both of the schools that we wanted there, but then he got into Marquette in Milwaukee as well. And it was kind of one of those things where there were undeniable signs that Milwaukee was where we were supposed to go, but it was so difficult to make that jump. And it was one of those things that I tell him 
now as we look back on it, it was the first time in my life that the leap of faith had like taken my breath away, that it was so difficult to, to take that leap and to know that we were doing the right thing, but to still not know how things were going to go. And yeah. it really was breathtaking. I remember driving through the state of Wyoming with my back to the West, which I had grown up in the West. I loved the West. And as things got flatter and flatter, as the mountains started disappearing, and as the cornfields started to appear, I just bawled. It was so difficult to do because I have this westward pull to my soul, and I knew that we were doing the right thing, but I had this car full of babies, and you know, my children, we were taking them away from everything that they had known, and um, leaving our business and our home and all of these things. And it was just, it was a testament to the fact that sometimes a lot of times when you do the right thing, it's really, really hard, but it was a great experience. And Chriselle, you know, the experiences that we had in Milwaukee were tough, but they were also really great and character building. And, you know, the people that we met, I mean, I got to meet you and become really connected to you and your sweet girls. And so anyway, we, he went through dental school. It was really difficult. Our sixth child was born um, three months before his mother passed away during finals week. I mean, we just had a lot of stuff that happened and it was really difficult, but he pushed through, graduated, did really well in dental school. And we ended up staying in Wisconsin. Um, I never in a million years thought that I would live in the Midwest and we ended up here and it's just been a really great blessing for our family to have done what we knew was the right thing. Um, and to take that leap, but yeah, yeah so that's how we're here. One more really how I know you. part of your story is that, um, so, so, and I know this from talking with you a little bit before, but everybody going through the dental process um, approaches the end of school and starts thinking about where they're going to practice. And I learned that that comes in a variety of ways. Some people maybe have a dentist office in the family, perhaps dad's already been practicing, so they're gonna go and they're gonna take over dad's practice. And others have a friend and they're going to open up a new practice together. The two buddies are gonna practice together. Your practice came to you in a very unique manner. Do you wanna talk about that? Yeah. So Ernesto was in his third year of dental school and he was doing his pediatrics rotation. So during dental school, you do rotations, just like in medical school, all, all doctors can deliver a baby, but not all doctors are OBGYNs. And so all dentists can do, can work on children, do root canals, all of those things. They're just not necessarily their specialty. So he was doing his pediatrics rotation and the head of the clinic is, goes to the same church as us and knew Ernesto really well. And there was an older dentist from about 45 minutes away from the dental school who just drove up to the school one day and walked in and talked to the person in practice placement. So they have an office at the dental school where they help or they help the dental students to find placement. They try and figure out what a good fit for them would be. And so he chatted with her for a few minutes and said, I have this dental office that I built connected to my house. I wanted to have a racquetball court and this was just the way to do it. And um, so he's got, you know, which is really weird in the United States. You don't live in the same place where you work. That, that's very common in Europe and Latin America and other places, but it's very, very rare for the United States for you to have the same building be your, your office and your home. And so um, he said, you know, I, I raised my family in this home. I'm looking for a family guy who wants to, you know, be really be a part of the community and our church community and things like that. And she said, oh, well, the head of our pediatrics um, unit is the same, goes to the same church. So why don't I introduce you to him? So she took him to meet Dr. Rackham, who's the head of pediatrics at the time. And Ernesto happened to be on rotation with a couple of other guys um, 
in kind of similar circumstances had young families and things like that. And so Dr. Rackham grabbed these, these dental students and sat them down and, and he said, here, this, this guy wants to tell you about his, his practice and his, you know, his little spiel. So Dr. Bauer, who's the older dentist, he, he started talking to them and kind of gave them his whole, you know, this is how great it is to, you know, have a racquetball court in your house with the dental office and how great everything's been going. And, and the other two guys sitting with him were both fourth years, but they also, they both had something already lined up because it was spring. And he turned to Ernesto and he said, well, what do you think? And Ernesto said, well, I'm a third year. And he said, no, 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 I want to sell this year. Ernesto said, okay, well, that sounds, you know, interesting. And I, I have a friend who graduated last year, hasn't really solidified anything. So it said he was going to hook him up with our friend. Our friend went and looked at his practice, thought it was really weird. And <laughs> Ernesto went and it was practicing. He was like, well, I'm going to pretend that I was going to buy this practice and I'm going to ask all the questions that they teach me in dental school. So he was using this as like, oh, I'm going to practice. Well, the dentist took that as, hey, this guy's really interested. And so it didn't work out with our friend and he still wasn't having any success trying to find anybody else. So he called Ernesto one day and he said, hey, you seem like you were really interested. And Ernesto said, well, I'm still in my third year. I have another year to go. And he said, well, what if I was willing to wait? And we had had our family motto be, I'll go where you want me to go. So we wanted to go where God wanted our family to be. And so we thought God wanted our family in Texas or New Mexico or Arizona or someplace nice and hot with a lot of Hispanics because my husband's from Mexico and speaks Spanish. And so we thought, you know, this will be great. We've endured our, our Wisconsin winters. We've, you know, checked that off of our list. And now we would like to go someplace hot and sunny. And with a lot of Hispanics and good Mexican food, because that's not necessarily something you always get in Milwaukee. And so, um, <laughs> so we, um, so as he was talking to my husband, Ernesto put it on speakerphone and I was rolling my eyes. I'm like, no, no, no. And the thought came to me, how can you say you'll go, I'll, you'll go where I want you to go if you're not willing oh. to just drive up to Hartford, Wisconsin, which is 40 minutes away. And I was like, fine. God's going to test me. I'm going to pass this test. Of course, I'll go up and look at the place. So he said, bring your family up, bring your wife. I'll show you around. They can play in the racquetball court, whatever. And so as we were driving up there, we had kind of this family discussion about what our goals were as a family and, and what we wanted to accomplish and, you know, all of these things. And I said, we're not going to live here, but this is just going to kind of give us the experience of looking at a dental practice and all of this stuff. And we drove up and it was like, God said to us, ta-da, this is where you're going to accomplish all those things you want to do as a family. And we were like, ah. and it was such an undeniable experience. Once again, where God said, Hey, here you go. You can have this amazing opportunity if you are willing to take this leap of faith and do something that you don't necessarily want to do. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was very clear to our family that this was an opportunity for us that, that God had kind of tailor-made for us. And we took the opportunity and it was really difficult. Again, it was very difficult to say, okay, we're never going to live by family. Nobody's ever going to move to Milwaukee unless they come and work for Harley Davidson or, you know, some big manufacturer or something. People just, it's not like Wisconsin's on anybody's radar of like top 10 places that they really want to come live. Once you live here, you get sucked in and it's amazing. You but, and I know the secret about Milwaukee and Wisconsin oh yeah. as a whole, but yes, but the rest of the country doesn't understand. It's a well, it's a very well kept secret. It and it's, I mean, we do keep it secret because the cheese curds are amazing. And if too many people get here, <laughs> you won't have as many cheese curds or custard or, That's true. you know, any of the other things, don't you know? Yeah. So, so <laughs> anyway. I think that your family motto, you mentioned one and, and that, that was the motto for the year, but I think another one for your family could be, we can do hard things. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, being there hasn't always been easy for your kids. No, no, I've had, my children are biracial. So my husband obviously is from Mexico and, um, it was very difficult for them when we first moved here. Um, they had some very difficult experiences and it was very character building for them because I've just always raised them to be good people. I, I grew up in a very racially diverse area and in Northern California, I mean, my husband, I, I met and dated him when he lived in the San Francisco Bay area, Bay area, which is incredibly diverse, you know, and, um, but also somewhat segregated in, in some ways. And Milwaukee is very similar. Um, but with a lot, I, I don't know, it was just a different experience. And it was, it was difficult because I had to watch my children and I had to fight different fights than I had fought before for my children and really advocated for them in ways that I didn't think I was going to have to. Yeah. And so it's been good for them. It's been good for me and it's been good for us. But again, you know, you're right. We can do hard things and it's when we get out of our comfort zone that those hard things become opportunities for us to grow. So what has been your, as the mom, as the mom, a bear of the family, and, and I know from being there at your side a few times when when Ernesto was getting through the dental school process, um, that, that you were leading the family, but what are some of the things that you did to pull through the hard times? So I really kept our family as a close unit. It was something where I... So for example, since our family, my extended family, my siblings, my extended family were far away, um, when they would have family reunions, we didn't have money so we couldn't fly. And so I ensured that we attended all of the family events that we could. And so I drove, when I was pregnant with my sixth, I was seven months pregnant and I drove 36 hours each way to Oregon to make sure that we were at a reunion with my grandfather who I knew wasn't going to be around for super much longer, but those experiences offered, I mean, it, it was something where people kind of looked at me and were like, Oh, I can't believe that you're doing that. That's so irresponsible. But at the same time, it bonded my children together to have those common experiences where, you know, I would, we would stop at the banks of the Mississippi and take pictures and, and they look back at those crazy road trips and the times where we took them to brewers games or, you know, did these things as just our little family unit. And it really did keep us unified but it was very difficult. And that's the thing is that I think a lot of times as human beings, we shy away from the hard stuff. And I did have, I, I know people and I have friends who when things got difficult during dental school or medical school or just in life in general, their instinct was to retreat and to, you know, to go somewhere where it wasn't so difficult. And it kind of fractured their family unit in some ways. And so we just made a commitment that we were going to stay together as a family as much as possible. And any time that we had with Ernesto was precious time. And so if he had, you know, if he was done with finals then and had a week, then we would do something just as a family for a week. There was no like, oh, I'm gonna sit and relax on the couch. And for our family, that was just really important. And again, everybody does things differently. And, and I don't have any judgment on mm -hmm. people's ways of dealing with things. But I think for our family, we're very, we're a very close unit because we took those opportunities to stay close to each other and to lift each other. Cause it was hard. I mean, Chriselle, you know, you watched us go through it and it, it was hard, but it, it was four years that I think we can look back on with, um, just happy gratitude that we made it through yeah. all in one piece. Nobody died. We need survivor t-shirts for surviving yeah, we should graduate have school when we were in our thirties. <laughs> Yes. So I know. 
It's special. So <laughs> Ernesto's been practicing now for five years. Yeah. And it, yeah, that's crazy. Number one. And congratulations. Um, I remember coming up and visiting you guys at the practice shortly after you had taken over. So to finish the story, Dr. Bauer ended up selecting you. You guys took over the practice and then he stayed on board and he worked with Ernesto through that first year, really yeah. officially handing over the baton. So Ernesto yeah. has become the town dentist and <laughs> it's amazing. I think just that it, when I listen to this again, what I hear you say is you did everything kind of in your power to not end up there. And, yeah. <laughs> and God showed you that there were, there was a, a different plan and you guys have completely embraced it. So yeah. today, it, through supporting Ernesto, I know you've been heavily involved with the Alliance for the American Dental Association. And yep. um, today, you're now the president. So tell us yeah. a little bit about some of the adventures and the efforts going on over there. So the Alliance of the American Dental Association is the spouse's organization that is that supports organized dentistry and I became involved during the student years kind of I was kind of dragged into it by another a, a classmate spouse and she was really gung-ho about it and very excited and I was so overwhelmed with so many kids and and all of these things I was like fine I'll I'll be the treasurer because that's not mm -hmm. a very you know involved role and so I did everything that I could to support her, but I became pregnant. I have, I, I do have postpartum depression after each of my children and it's gotten progressively worse. And so after my sixth was born and then my mother-in-law died and there were all of these things that kind of snowballed and I had this postpartum depression, I really didn't have the capacity to do very much. And so, but I, I still kept trying to do whatever I could to support her because I felt like, you know, it was really important to her. And this was kind of a way that she was coping with the difficulties of dental school. And so I, I wanted to be supportive of another woman. And so um, she became less involved after two years. And so I, I kind of, we had to make a decision and I decided, well, I did really like this organization. It does provide a voice for the spouses of dentists because you have to remember dentistry is a very unique profession. Doctors don't really have their private practices anymore. Doctors work for big HMOs or corporations now. They, do, they don't own their own businesses like they used to. And so amongst healthcare workers, dentists are very unique because they are small business owners, a lot of them, plus they're healthcare providers. And so you have this really unique, weird dynamic where you have kind of these two hats that you have to wear. And it's a very heavy hat. These are very heavy hats to wear. I mean, just being a healthcare provider by itself is difficult. And so the Alliance of the American Dental Association works on supporting the dental family. Dentists amongst white, white collar and healthcare workers have amongst the highest rates of suicide. And it's, it's this kind of weird dynamic, you know, that you've got this great profession that is among the top five professions in the country, but then you juxtapose that with it being, you know, a, a driver in suicide and depression and, and a lot of, mm. they also have a lot of health issues that are connected with the profession. And so um, the organization provides support for the spouse and the family and tries to find ways for them to help and support their spouse. Uh, they work on legislative advocacy, which, you know, everybody hates politics, especially right now. Everybody's like, no, no political stuff. But if you look at what happened during the pandemic, you had a ton of professions that were just hammered. You had hairstylists and estheticians and gym owners and, you know, restaurants and all of these businesses that just really got thrown under the bus as non-essential, right? Well, dentistry, because they work very hard at legislative advocacy, they were able to advocate for the profession on behalf of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dentists throughout the country saying, hey, this is essential. We need to keep them open and, and included in the payroll protection program and all of these other things. And so 
the the Alliance of the American Dental Association just provides that extra voice, right? Because if the government's going to tax our business or put some onerous regulations, well, what does that mean? That means that my family has less money to pay off our student loan bills and to you know invest in our community and things like that. And so it offers the spouse an opportunity to you know to say, hey, I'm the second person that's involved in this. I'm also a small business owner. I am a professional or I have children and I'm involved in the community. And then the third thing that they really focus on is dental health education in the community. And so we have a lot of opportunities to reach out. I go to schools and give presentations on dental hygiene and, and how every child should brush their teeth for two minutes, two times a day and go to the dentist two times a year, you know? And so we have opportunities to be in our community to talk about the dangers of vaping and, and all of these things that affect our community, water fluoridation, um, you know, tons of different things. So those are kind of the three main focuses. And so as we were going through this, it, it started off as kind of a social outlet for people in the same situation in dental school. But then as I learned more about the organization, I was like, this is really important work that's being done. And so I went to a couple of their conferences and, and I said, hey, if you guys need any help with anything, if you need you know, involvement, I, I'm happy to do whatever I can. Well, they took that as, hey, she wants to be on our leadership council. And so um, I kind of got drafted into that. And then they kind of were like, well, you've been on the leadership council for a year would you like to do something else? And it's not that I have, I don't have a hard time saying no. I, I understand my boundaries really well, but I was so passionate and I still am very passionate, obviously, about this, the importance of this organization. And so when it came time where there was kind of this leadership vacuum for the presidency track, they approached me and said, hey, would you be willing and, and would you consider doing this? I'm probably about 20 years younger than the average um, president or leadership member of this organization. But it's kind of this important bridge because organized everything, you, your Rotary Clubs, your Kiwanis groups, your Lions Club, all of these organizations that are so vital and important for our communities are dying off because younger people don't recognize the importance of belonging to things, right? Sure. And so, you know, and there's an importance in being individualistic as a society, but at the same time, you have to recognize the Lions Club, for example, and the Rotary, they go and do vision and hearing screenings at schools that often get missed. Um, the volunteer work that's done through these organizations is irreplaceable and the government's not going to ever step in and do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, anyway, so that's kind of how I got, I, I don't want to say roped. I, I've always <laughs> been very willing to, to, to do these things, but I a little bit got roped into the leadership track and um, it's been tricky, especially this year, because a lot of our meetings, a lot of the things that I was supposed to do became virtual and they became you know, oh, well, this is canceled, mm -hmm. that is canceled. Um, and we've had to shift. We have this wellness committee that does virtual Zoom calls and, and meetings. And and it's been great because we focused a lot more on wellness than on other things. And so anyway, that's just kind of how I became involved. And yeah. a long answer to a short question. That's what you get when you ask me things. <laughs> when you go into schools, um, what are you seeing with our children today? How is our, our dental health and hygiene? How are we doing with our children? Well, before the pandemic, I would say that we were on the right track. The unfortunate thing is that for the last maybe 10 or 20 years, the medical and the dental community have really pushed prevention, right? And so we were like, you go and get the preventative things done. You get your, you get your mammograms, you get your dental cleanings, all of these things. Because if you think about your mouth, everything that you put in goes into the rest of your body. And so oral health is a huge indicator of holistic health. And so when you have somebody whose mouth is unhealthy, 
you have somebody who's the rest of their body is unhealthy, generally speaking. Now there are people, there are issues with genetics and other things, you know, that might be other indicators, but generally speaking, your oral health is your, is your overall health. And so you can have dentists who are catching things. They also screen for oral cancer and all of these other things. So for a long time, we have been pushing prevention, prevention, prevention. Well, the problem with the COVID response was they pulled everything back and they said only emergencies. They scared everybody into thinking that you shouldn't go anywhere close to a hospital or a clinic or a dental office or anything mm -hmm. unless you were dying, right? And yeah. then even then, maybe you should just do a telehealth call. And if you're dying, maybe, you know, lift your head a tiny bit and the doctor can tell if you're really dying or not, right? And so the issue is that now we're, we're reprogramming people to not think of prevention in the same way. And we're scaring children into thinking that some, that a virus that really truly statistically speaking is not dangerous for children. It's not, the statistics don't bear it out. We have European countries that never, never close their schools. And so the issue is that now we're saying to children, stay away from the dental office. You know, you don't want to have, go anywhere where you can't take your mask off. Well, the problem with that is that children develop dental anxiety quite young. And we, I go into dental or into, I'm sorry, I go into elementary schools and I go into kindergarten, first, second, third grade. I've seen third graders who are eight or nine years old who have never been to the dentist before and their mouths are bombed out. And so when you create anxiety in these children about preventative things, where if they start going to the dentist when they're one or two years old and they go twice a year and they like their dentist and they have a good rapport with their hygienist, they're not going to be afraid of anything. But when you tell them that you don't go to see somebody who, and again, a dental office is probably the safest place for you to be during a pandemic. Why? Well, because dentists treat people with tuberculosis that kills a million and a half people around the world every year. Dentists treat people with active HIV and AIDS. Dentists treat people with hepatitis. Their infection controls are so strict in the United States that it's probably one of the safest places for you to be. And so, and with all of these extra precautions, it's even safer. So it's been really unfortunate because the work that we have done is all about prevention. And I'm not going into into elementary schools to, you know, recruit people to come to my husband's office. You know, we give them like a little water bottle and a toothbrush and stuff, but I don't care who they go see. I want the, these babies, I want these children in a dental office getting to know their dentist because again, prevention, especially in these Title I schools where you have low socioeconomic um, issues, children who don't have good nutrition, all of these other things. This is a lifelong systemic issue that, that this child is going to face. And so it's better for them to understand when they're younger, the dental office is a safe place for you to be. It's a good place for you to be. You need to take care of your mouth because your teeth are the only bones that you can see. And if your bones in your mouth aren't healthy, then the bones in the rest of your body aren't going to be healthy either. And so sure. anyway, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but great. Yeah, great answer. So uh, I really liked what you said. Two minutes, two times a day, twice a year. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. easy to remember. Just a two, yeah. two, two. And my little preschoolers can get it. I, I go in and I see these little two and three-year-old babies and we talk about the big number two. And I have my cute little, my little dragon puppet that has big shiny teeth. And we talk about how you brush in a circle for two minutes and yeah. So they're just, and little ones just soak up anything that you teach them, especially things that are true, that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. They're just so sweet. And they, and I just, it breaks my heart. These little babies who've, you know, who just don't have their oral health taken care of because their parents were never taught. Mm -hmm. And so again, you know, education, prevention, that's the way to a healthy society. And if you think about COVID, 
who are the people who are most affected? It's people with underlying health conditions. And a lot of it is driven by lifestyle. And so, you know, if we can prevent type two diabetes in these children, in these, in the racial minorities where it's much more prevalent, why are they getting type two diabetes? It's because of diet. It's because of what they're putting in their mouth. And sure. if they start going to the dentist when they're young, they talk to them about no sugary drinks, no, you know, talking to them about the good green things they should be eating, all of that stuff. If those babies are in the chair when they're one, two, three years old, having that communication and, and you know, the dentist talking to their mama about, hey, let's stop having juice. You know, let's, let's start just drinking water and milk. Um, you know, those are, those are good things. And you can break those cycles of, of bad health outcomes that really, it, it, that's where you see the people dying from COVID, you know, besides age, obviously, sure. but the people with underlying health sure. conditions, a lot of it is lifestyle induced. So, yeah. We just have a couple of minutes left. I was going to ask, do you have any funny stories from the office that you can share? Oh, I have so many. Um, our, our cute office manager, she has a little boy who's a couple years younger than, uh, than my youngest. And um, you would think that with her mo his mom working in a dental office, he would just love it. No, he hates it. He screams every time we have to schedule him at times when, when there's nobody else in the office. And he actually really likes my husband. He's a, <laughs> and he's a darling kid and he's a good friend of, of, um, of my kids. But yeah, that's yeah. kind of funny. Um, the yeah, kid who's have, most scared of the dentist is the one whose mom works there. It's probably true. Yeah. Well, we had, we had the worst. When my husband was in dental school, actually when he was doing his peds rotation, um, he, we got the kids all scheduled to come in for cleanings and they do the panoramic x-rays and in the pediatrics unit at the dental school, they put the x-rays up on a big screen so that all of the students can see and, and, you know, the doctor can teach them, oh, here we have this, or if there's an anomaly in their, in their dentition or whatever, they can kind of demonstrate that. Well, we were really excited and we were going to take our kids in to get their cleanings and, you know, Ernesto was so excited to show off his kids. Well, they took a panoramic x-ray of our oldest daughter who had um, at Halloween time had hidden her candy under her pillow and she would dutifully brush her teeth every night and then stuff her face with candy as she laid in bed. And none of us knew this at the time. <laughs> we, uh, they took her x-ray and put it up on the big screen and she had like eight cavities and had to have a crown and it was awful. And he was so embarrassed. He was so mad. And I was like, I promise I brush her teeth every night with her. And he was just, it was mortifying. But yeah, that's, I mean, wow, like the, the dentist. I kid. love that one. <laughs> yeah, the dentist kid the was candy. the one with the bombed out mouth. Yeah, so my sisters will text me like when they go to the dentist with their kids and like, oh, look who's cavity free. And I'll text them when I take my kids and I'm like, oh, look who has another cavity. Like, <laughs> I guess I our dentist friend, just really wants money from us. <laughs> I had a friend who used to, what he, so he would go to his friend who was the dentist. And he said, mm -hmm. so anyway, one day he said, oh, I got to eat my Oreos. I'm on the way, my way to the dentist. And I was like, what? <laughs> so he intentionally eats Oreos before he goes just to be a pain and, a, you know, like a, yeah. give his buddy a, a run for his money. So dentists have a weird sense of humor. They're a special bunch of people and I love all of them. <laughs> well, we really appreciate the time you've taken to be with us today. Before you go, uh, we have a fun question for you. We just yeah. want to know what is something that you ate when you were growing up that was completely normal until you left your house and talked to others and realized that was the weirdest thing that anyone could have ever. Oh, Chriselle, this is <laughs> the wrong question to ask me. This is not a short answer. My mom listened to a thing about food storage rotation one time and thought that that meant that always you should be using your long-term food storage oh. for every meal. 
So we never had store-bought milk when we were growing up. We were milk. given powdered milk, which is disgusting. Oh. It is so disgusting. Cold cereal? And you mix it with water. With powdered uh, Oh, milk? no, we never had cold cereal. No, no, okay. no, not cold okay. cereal. We never had store-bought cereal. Um, we had, my mom would take her wheat and she would coarse grind it and then she would boil it and make it into mush. We called it mush. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Cracked wheat cereal, maybe. Yeah. Um, and so we would have freshly cracked, cracked wheat cereal with no sweetener. And, um, because apparently sugar was not in the rotation of the long-term food storage. I was like, mm, when I have my long-term food storage, I will have sugar in it. Um, every once in a while we would get to like chop up a banana or something if we were really good. Um, but then powdered milk. And, um, we, we had a very special, um, dietary experience growing up. But it was you, a culinary was journey. It was very normal until our friends came over and yeah. they were like, what in the actual world is your mom doing? And I lived in California. So it's not like anybody had food storage around us. And there were 10 kids in my family. So, I mean, we were already kind of weird anyway. My mom would go to like the farmer's market and but she would have like, you know, those, uh, the, the dollies that transport the boxes. Our produce guy, Nick from Greece, who I still to this day remember, Nick Dimas, um, he would, we would have boxes and boxes of fresh produce. I mean, to load them up like eight to 10. And he always had one of his sons. We would go to Greek festivals with them. It, my mom was his best customer, but we had fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And then food storage. And <laughs> that's awesome. Nothing pre-made in our house at all. So we wow. grew up in the weirdest. It it'll make you just appreciate, you know, when I moved away to college for about a month straight, I ate Lucky Charms with whole milk and made myself so sick that I was just like, oh, I'm never eating Lucky pre-processed sugary stuff again. <laughs> yeah. And all of that's us still awesome. have problems with dairy. Next time I go so to my really pantry. Special and dig through my food storage. I'm going to mm -hmm. think of you. Always. Yes. I will always think of you. And then put it right back. Be like, <laughs> I will only eat this if the zombies are knocking at my door or if the COVID makes it so that all the things are gone. But even then think twice yeah. because yeah. it's special and it might traumatize your kids. I don't know. I, maybe I should go to therapy. I'm still thinking about it. But. <laughs> I love it. Well, hey, but fun fact, if you take, yes. if you take wheat, and you, you chew on it long enough, it makes like a gum-like substance. We so since we that, didn't right? get gum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So get it before it gets ground up into mush cereal. But yeah. So just fun fact. That was an awesome interview with Susie. I loved hearing her story. With my background, I actually worked in the dental industry for several years. So I really love, and I can really kind of relate in some weird mm -hmm. ways to her awesome, inspiring story. Yeah. I know you have one more positive little message you just wanted to share before we leave today. Yeah. So in closing, I just want to let you know about something neat that happened the other day. My husband and I went out to the mailbox and opened it up and found a refund check inside. Something that we were not expecting just came completely out of the blue, but it made our day. I believe that if you are being good, if you are being kind, if you are treating others with respect and as decent human beings, that you will be able to find the good and in turn, you will be blessed for doing so. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to like, to share, to comment. We will see you again next week. See you next week. Bye.